0: All right. Two ground rules before we really start here, okay? First, (laughs) and I could just picture this happening, like my first five comments are going to be sweet. I can't wait for all your other ruminations. Please keep doing ruminations and stop doing everything else. I am trying to do ruminations. I know it doesn't look like it, but I've actually been working on this video for the last two weeks, pretty much every day. So I am trying, guys. Give me a some kind of a break okay please second thing slightly more important uh as you guys know i have this thing i call the war against spoilers and it's basically impossible it's, it's literally impossible to discuss the kingdom hearts series without doing spoilers uh that's true with many such series one of the unique aspects of it though is that it's usually from one game to the next without regard to the individual. There there are some exceptions of course, but I decided that rather than disallow all spoilers in the comments, which would basically mean nobody could actually talk about the game at all for all intents and purposes except for combat, the rule is going to be for this entire series, and I'll mention this in every video, if you, want to, if you want to talk about things that are spoilery or spoil the plot, you may do so within the realms of the game currently being discussed. For example, anyone wants a to mention in the comments anything that might be considered a spoiler for Kingdom Hearts 1 in this video may do so. And, you know, without fear of being uh, deleted or anything like that. Similarly, if I was doing the video of Kingdom Hearts 2 right now, you may talk about Kingdom Hearts 2. However, in this video, you do not discuss anything about what's going to be happening in Kingdom Hearts 2. Alright, you understand where I'm going with this? I've also decided to be slightly more lenient and not actually ban people for spoilers, like I had to do with Assassin's Creed uh, once, and uh, with Star Trek Into Darkness three times. But instead, I will be simply deleting your comment. Alright, now that we got all that unpleasantness out of the way, let's talk about some weird stuff, okay? I want to mention this first. Kingdom Hearts 1. Kingdom Hearts may have been one of the very last games that ever came out that had Squaresoft on the cover. Kingdom Hearts came out in March of 28th, 2002. And the merger into Square Enix finished... You know, it had already started, but it finished in April 1st, 2003. And yes, I know that the merger thing was was starting to happen, you know, prior to that. I know that they'd been working on it for some time. But, uh the hell? God dang it. Sorry about that. But if you actually look at the cover of the game, which I actually did physically bring out my cover because I wasn't 100% sure myself on this, it does still say Square Soft on the cover. And I, something about that just amuses me. And if you're wondering why, you don't know my opinions on the whole SquareSoft, Square Enix, Square Crap thing. And uh, that's all we're going to say on the subject. in the hell. Moving on. Kingdom Hearts was a huge risk for well both companies actually, Disney and and Square both. It came at a time when they were in pretty much severe financial straits. That was that was the low point as far as their uh, business side of things are going and Disney hadn't really gotten as popular, hadn't had the upsurge in popularity it was about to have yet, and Disney hadn't started, the company Disney hadn't started uh, eating up other franchises in order to start expanding their own uh, setup, market, demographic, etc. as well either. So it was a pretty risky move on both parts. One of the big reasons why that was a risk was because if you just sit down and think about it on paper, it's one of those ideas that people are either going to react with, wow, that sounds awesome, or that sounds terrible. Why would you ever do that? Literally, just think about this moment. Just take yourself out of the situation. Ignore the games. Ignore them ever happening. And just think about the thought, okay, we're going to add Disney and Final Fantasy and mix them together. (laughs) I distinctly remember my own impression at the time, which was, you're kidding, right? now i actually do like disney uh have for some time pardon me and uh and i like final fantasy especially at the time so it's not like i was like oh you're just gonna ruin one or the other it was just the mixture seemed like such an oddity to me that i could not figure out how or why it would ever possibly work and i basically refused to pick it up for quite a while i didn't actually i know i've told this story forgive me But I didn't actually pick up Kingdom Hearts 1 until my girlfriend of the time had been playing it and enjoying it. And she got stuck on Ursula, the second time you fight Ursula. And she was like, can you please help me fight this boss? I know you're good at video games. I'm like, fine. And so I fought Ursula and was blown away by how much fun it was. Just that one fight, you know. Just that one uh, big combat boss with Ursula. And I'm just like, huh. That was awesome, Um, interesting, and so I asked her if I could borrow the game uh, when she was done with it, and she said to go ahead and let me borrow it now, because she wouldn't be done with it for forever, and I was like, okay, so I borrowed it and played it over the course of the weekend, beat it over the course of a weekend, which should tell you something about how much I was playing the hell out of it, and you get where I'm going with this, right? Very much, uh, it, it's something you'll see in fiction in general, uh, semi-often, actually, Sometimes people will take risks, and they will fail miserably, and they, they, people will just be like, wow, I can't believe you ever thought that would succeed. But other times people will take risks like that, and it will succeed so wildly that no one ever, everyone just like, wow. Uh, actually, if you'll forgive me for segueing for just a second, a good example of this is the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Again, you look at that on paper and you think, you want to make a movie about that ride? That stupid boring ride that nobody even remembers and half the people who go to Disneyland don't even do anymore? Why? And yet they did the movie and it was great, whether you liked the, the quadralogy or not. Everyone, most everyone I, I know admits the first movie was fantastic and it sold like crazy. And you look at it and it's like, how was that successful? And that's kind of how I feel about Kingdom Hearts. I look at it, even now, to this day, I look at it and say, how is this successful? No. Uh, is as per. I'm going to be doing this overall rumination in a slightly different style. Uh, I don't have much else to say about the construction of the game, other than uh, other than the uncertainty thing. I'll get to that later when we get to the story. But uh, I'm going to be talking about the the controls, UI, gameplay first. That's kind of normal, uh, and then I'm going to talk about each world individually in order, well in relative order, and then I'm gonna add a couple of things at the end, okay? So slightly different. Uh, This is to help me concentrate, because I'm having, I'm already having issues to be honest with you. Um, Let's go and talk about, okay, now those of you who are not sold in this game, I apologize because the next like eight things I'm gonna say are gonna sound like how horrible this game is. Uh, I'll explain that in more detail later why that is, and why all these are negatives, and and explain the reality of it, but just bear with me, okay? First thing about Kingdom Hearts 1. The camera control is terrible. Uh, There is camera control at all. It's just bad. Uh, Basically, you have a degree of the ability to move it back and forth. It's slow, and it's cumbersome. And it contributes to a problem Kingdom Hearts One has in general, which is basically the flow of the game is really chunky. It's it, it, it doesn't actually have good flow, actually, as far as combat. I'll just put it in that way. It does not have good pacing, it does not whatever you want to call it, it is not smooth, it's more like <laughs> okay. When it's good it's great. Well, okay, when it's good it's good, actually. But when then then then, then when it's bad it's terrible, and it's just holy crap. Um. So the camera is a big contributor to that. The whole camera general lack of control is terrible. And not just the lack of control, but the camera itself was kind of terrible. There are many bosses in Kingdom Hearts 1 that are big or that ha- or that move quickly across a huge arena or something like that, right? And it gets really annoying when your biggest obstacle to figuring out where the boss is or where the boss's weak point is or whatever is the camera. You understand where I'm going with this? No, it's not actually a horrible camera, because I've seen that too in other games that we will not talk about here, but it is really an obstacle to going back and replaying Kingdom Hearts 1. Next thing, um, well, there was this game that came out, uh, forgive me for taking a trip down memory lane here for a moment, called Final Fantasy Adventure. Actually, it was called Seiken Densetsu 1, but whatever. Most people in the States have got it as Final Fantasy Adventure. And it was basically an attempt to do a Final Fantasy-style game, an RPG, except with what is what is effectively best described as Zelda-style combat. Uh, Zelda top-down, specifically, style combat, of course, because, you know, the 3D games hadn't come out yet. And... Uh, it worked out rather well, all things considered. It worked out so well, they came out with another game called Secret of Mana, which is much more well-known. Secret of Mana took the Zelda style of combat and took it another step further. I've, I've talked about this before, so you'll forgive me for pausing for, for words here, but the general idea here is it's not just Zelda combat. They went out of their way to make sure that every attack, every weapon you have equipped has its own attacks, Uh, and, and of course, the charge attacks, and its own hitboxes, and its own movement rate, and they did everything on the pixel level rather than the block level. Now, that that basically makes the combat full-on top-down action, for all intents and purposes at that point. It's its own little brand of combat. It's actually kind of hard to explain why it's different than uh, so many other combat systems, but just bear with me, okay? The Secret of Mana combat system worked really well, and they liked that a lot. And then they you know, and they put it into and 3 as well, and then that game never came out ever outside of Japan, ever, because Square Enix hates us, but moving on. The original thing they were going with was... in Kingdom Hearts was really different, and... they had a whole... How do I put this? One of the big pushes that they did when they were doing uh, the Kingdom Hearts 1 thing was they wanted it to be a different field than a Final Fantasy game. And so they didn't want turn-based combat. Even action turn-based combat, which is uh, best described by FF12, I think. You know, you still have the turns and you're still acting, but it's also moving full full, uh, tilt, you know, full active time, and everything's moving around and stuff like that. They wanted the full-on action thing. And their team had already developed this for you know, the Secret of Mana series for the uh, second intensive series. So, they decided to go ahead and take that and, and try and use that. As they were working with it, they were like, well, how do we do this in three dimensions? Because that was the big trick. They had, This had to be a 3D game. Now, you can tell they were still kind of getting used to how it works, but I think this was a fen- phenomenal idea, because number one, the Secret of Mana style of combat is great, especially when it's done right. Secret of Mana itself is a great example of that. But number two, as is obvious by further games in the series, as they keep polishing the combat engine, and keep polishing the animations, and the graphics, and the, the movement, it works really well, and it provides an excellent form of what is effectively an action RPG, for all intents and purposes. So that was the next big step, as far as... Now, This of course, this sounds like a positive, but I do have to mention that with Kingdom Hearts 1, it, it's got what I like, what I've started calling the Mario 64 syndrome. In other words, this was their first time doing this, and they were still trying to figure out how to do it they were still trying to figure out how to get the system to work. Uh, there's this whole problem with what I like to call stalled actions. Uh, the code for Kingdom Hearts 1 basically did not support uh, cancellation or alteration or simultaneous action. So if you do a swing and you miss then you're gonna have to wait for that swing to finish its full animation, which is only gonna be a, a few, you know, tenths of a second, right? But when you're in the middle of a hectic fully action fight like the kingdom hearts series has constantly those few tenths of a second you know that half of a second or whatever is actually a big deal and when it's happening constantly always every single fight you get where i'm going with this it does get a little bit old it go going back from say kingdom hearts 2 where they had the combat engine almost beautiful you know beautifully fluid to kingdom hearts 1 where it's this clunky and it has this many problems is just the difference is monumental at least to someone like me I know other people said this as well, so I'm, I'm not trying to be an elitist bastard here, I'm just mentioning it. And on top of that, we also have the jumping mechanic, uh, because again, this is in full 3D. And one of the things they were big on was they wanted to have, you know... I, I, I hate to call them jumping puzzles, because these really aren't jumping puzzles, but they wanted you to have... I, I don't know what else to call them. Really, really mild jumping puzzles? They wanted you to actually be maneuvering around in you know, full 3D up down in addition to the four uh, card eight cardinal directions. And so there's a lot of things where you have to jump up on crates or jump up over this thing or jump up onto this log or stuff like that, right? The problem is the jumping and the physics for maneuvering both weren't really working it and if you'll just watch the game for a minute, hell you you don't even have to play long into the game. You could play the game for like 20 minutes and you will know exactly what I'm talking about. The jump works weird. Uh, Once you finish your apex you actually hover for about a second as the physics tries to take over and then pulls you down, but it pulls you down in a very strange manner and the game is really picky about what you can land on and what you can't so if you missed you know just by a pixel where you were supposed to land on you'll just slide off of the ledge of what looks like a perfectly landable spot and blah 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 it's just kind again this is just one of those things that's a little thing but it's so constant throughout the whole game uh, up until you learn how to fly of course that it's just immensely irritating and it makes the game much more frustrating to play than it really needs to be and it makes the whole overall combat maneuvering jumping puzzle etc thing feel much more frustrating than than it really needed to but to be fair, I will again mention that this was their first time doing this, and they did get better about this. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 2 alone sells that, but be it Birth by Sleep, which is my personal favorite as far as the combat systems of the Kingdom Hearts, uh, really showed that they, they they learned their lesson, and they figured it out, and they know what they're doing now. So, woo! Uh, I have another note here about the boss fights. I just want to mention this again. I know I already mentioned this in brief, but I just got to add... Kingdom Hearts has a lot of really epic, awesome boss fights. Or rather, I should rephrase this. Boss fights that should have been more epic than they were. It's not like they failed. It's not like the boss fights were bad. But so many of the boss fights felt subpar compared to what they should have been. Or less than what they could have been. You know, not filling up to their potential. Because of all the problems I've mentioned. Because of the jumping. Because of the combat mechanics. Because of the camera. Because the lock-on system... Oh, God, I didn't, I, can't, I didn't even mention the lock-on system, sorry. The lock-on system really was screwy in Kingdom Hearts 1. You have to have a lock-on system if you're having a 3D action RPG, basically, unless you're going to give... In some manner or another, unless you're going to do the other route, which I'm not even going to talk about. You have to have some kind of a lock-on system. And in Kingdom Hearts One's, it's finicky, it's twitchy, and it really screws with the camera when you have that lock-on. So... Oh, pardon me. So... Yeah, uh, I'll give you one very big example of this. The Cerberus fight. The first time you fight him in he- uh, Hercules' world. That should have felt like this big, awesome, yeah, fight. Instead, every time I fight that, it's just irritating. Even the first time I fought that, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. I'm going to be pumped and, oh, God, I can't see his head. Hang on. Okay, let me just get up his ba- on his back. Okay, no, hang on. I fell off of his... H- hang on. No? What the... Okay, hang on. You know, the whole thing should have been so much more epic and just kind of kept... It, it, it felt like it was someone who was blaring John Williams' music, right? You know, yeah! Except every so often, one guy in the back would just kind of hit a, hit a cowbell or something. And it's just like, why are you doing that? <laughs> You're ruining this music! <laughs> now, one other thing that Kingdom Hearts 1 had a big problem with, with the something new, you know, the, 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 the Mario 64 problem I already talked about, is what I call claustrophobia syndrome. Now, I do suffer from a bit of claustrophobia. I don't actually have claustrophobia. I just don't like enclosed spaces. Uh, That may not actually be claustrophobia, but you get the point, right? So this may be affecting me more than it would you or anyone else who has played Kingdom Hearts 1, if you understand what I mean by this. But probably the single best example of this is the... uh, Oh, what's the name of the place? Hang on. What's the name of the world? Wonderland! The Wonderland world. Because of the limitations of code and experience, and the processing, you know, the hardware at the time. The PS2 could do more than this, but you have to understand, this was still relatively early on in the PS2's lifespan, and they hadn't figured out exactly what they were doing it, like I said. So I'm not actually calling this a detriment per se, but it does bother me how small so many of the places feel. Like I said, claustrophobia syndrome. You go into a room, and it's just a room. It's this dinky little room. And you go into the next room, and it's just this dinky little room. I like games that, even if they aren't open, do at least look or feel open. You understand where I'm going with this? Now, that takes t- time. That takes code. That takes graphics designers to ever to work. And it takes processing power to be rendering all that stuff that basically isn't being used. It's background. It's fluff. But when you have the op- now, and, and And I can understand why you wouldn't want that. But when you go too far in the extreme, you ha- you're basically walking from one tiny little enclosed room to the next. And again, Wonderland is probably the best example of this, because Wonderland feels very, very small, even though I- 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 it really probably shouldn't. Um, there's a couple other places like that feel like this. Uh, Deep Jungle comes to mind, Monstro comes to mind, Agraba was probably the worst by far. However, to be fair, I will also mention that several of the areas do feel very open, even if they aren't. Uh, Neverland and Atlantica both come to mind, and of course Hollow Bastion and the End of the World both pulled that off very well. So it's not so it's it is obvious that they did start to learn how to do that as the game went on. I just wanted to mention that several of the earlier worlds really uh, had that claustrophobia syndrome, whatever you want to call that. Now there's one final thing that I have to mention. I I just have to. In Kingdom Hearts even one, but and all of the Kingdom Hearts, even up to Triple D, the most recent one, have had this problem. It has been getting less and less each game. Thank God! And I hope this problem finally goes away entirely in Kingdom Hearts 3. And do, do, not, do not mistake, I understand why they did this, okay? I get it, I, I am a programmer, I understand the coding reasons and the logistic, the logistic reasons and the money and time reasons why they did this, but it bugs the crap out of me and it has never not even when I first played this game. (laughs) The faces, okay? They have two methods of doing faces in the Kingdom Hearts series. One, they will have a static mesh, you know, just basically a blank face which has a texture on it. And the texture will animate. And it looks terrible. It looks absolutely abysmally awful. In some cases, it looks so bad, I, I look at that and I can't even believe that's the same character, because they have a second method, where the face is fully meshed. They actually have a nose, they actually have eyes. It's fully animated, you know, their eyes will actually move around, and their eyebrows will move, and their, their faces can, can move, you know. The, no real limitation on how much movement and animation the face can have. You follow where I'm going with this? Now, even in Kingdom Hearts 1, the latter, where they have full animation, looks great. And it really helps flesh out their expressions and their emotions and what they're doing in the scene. It, it, it's It's awesome, right? But the former looks so bad, especially, not not just in general, because it does look bad in general, but it looks much, much worse by comparison. And so when you're in the middle of a cutscene, and in one cutscene, it will flop back and forth between, I'm just going to character thing, and then I have a fully animated face, the the contrast is horrifying. In Kingdom Hearts 1, probably the worst example of that is the, is the villain of uh, Jungle Book, whose name I can't think of off the top of my head, forgive me, uh, the hunter guy. Um... But my personal favorite example, forgive me for skipping to another game, because, again, they keep doing this throughout the series, is Kingdom Hearts 2, Saix. Saix has a very expressive face, all things considered, and a very specific degree of emotions that that go across his face and go across his expression. Except when he's got the 2D texture face, in which case it looks like he's, like, half asleep and, and, and bored. And he's just like, brah, 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 brah. he goes from being, I am PsyX to, and it's just, whoa, whoa. I really, I'm, I'm glad that that's getting a less and less of a thing across the series, but it's really bad here in Kingdom Hearts 1, and I really hope they finally get rid of that in 3. <laughs> Let's talk about the gummy ships. We're still talking about combat for the most part here. The gummy ships are. F- are I mean, okay, this is going to sound weird, alright? It's clunky. The UE is difficult and very difficult to get used to, there's actually only so much you can do, uh, you, have, you are actually quite limited in how much you can do as far as design and structure of the ships you can make, and the stages are boring to the point of sleep inducing. Yet somehow the whole thing was still fun, and I'm glad for that, because that, as a result of the fact that people still liked the gummy ship and the Trevor, you know, traveling through thing, we got the gummy system in Kingdom Hearts 2, which I will probably be talking about a lot more. I also uh, love the fact that it was a good... Just this little smidgen of Star Fox fun, even though the stages were really boring, it was still good to have the old Star Fox thing going on in this game, and it was a nice way to to have instead of an overworld. You know, we we play these Star Fox levels in order to go in between the worlds. I liked that, and it made sense in the lore too. But one thing I do have to add, uh, lore related, the the music and background in the gummy sections both change and get more serious. Here's Rayhan get more serious and get darker the further you get into the game. Now, that's literal in many ways in a lore perspective because as you get further and further you know, east uh, along the map. As you get closer and closer to darkness, you are getting closer and closer to darkness. You're getting closer and closer to the terminus point where you act. When you finally hit the end of the world, I I love that. I love the way they did that. I mean, as you're appro- as you're going through Hollow Bastion, you know, you can. There's just this black hole of doom uh, that you're approaching. And when you finally go past Hollow Bastion all the way to the end of the world, you're actually in the black hole, and there's basically nothing you can see in any direction at all. The music is very serious and very you know dum 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 and i really like how they did that again it's one of those background things i was just talking about it's it's there for flavor but it really does help elevate the fact that you know early on you're just like "Ah." but as you get closer and closer to darkness you are literally descending into the darkness i like that so just wanted to mention that now (laughs) all of this sounds like a lot of complaining like i said earlier but even ignoring everything I'm gonna say after this point, you know, all the story reasons why I love this game, this game, in my opinion, was still worth playing. And you're gonna look at me and be like, what? That's crazy, all you've been doing is complaining about how disinteresting the game is to play. Well, follow with me it's okay. First of all, It was our first really good 3D action RPG. I know, I know, I know, there was ones before this, but in my opinion, this is the first one that really hit a sweet spot and did really well. It's one of the reasons, I think, personally, that it managed to sell as well as it did. And it was a fun action RPG. I'm sorry, yeah, fun action RPG. It had heavily stylized graphics. This is important. I've talked about this before. When you specifically stylize your graphics, the odds of them being good later, the odds of them aging better, are much higher because of the obvious reasons. Because stylized graphics will age better than trying to look realistic and you know failing at it because graphics aren't there yet. Um, you know, look at the difference between you know Link to the Past, for example, or Mario sixty four. Which one of those has aged better, despite the fact that one of them's older? You know what I mean? This is of course opinion, as all such things are. But my point is these stylized graphics suited it extremely well, because even the Final Fantasy characters didn't actually look out of place alongside the new characters, the Kingdom Hearts characters, you know, Sora, Riku, etc., and alongside the Disney characters. It all blends quite well. It's it's this nice in-between graphic style of... well, it's kind of hard to explain, but it is basically pseudo-cartoony, pseudo-cell-shaded. It wasn't actually cell-shaded. Kind of a shame. It, they, it, I think cel-shading would have worked great for the Kingdom Hearts series, but whatever. Um, pseudo-realistic, because, you know, we do the Final Fantasy characters do have uh, proper proportions and whatnot. And everyone looked appropriate relative to each other. And so it all blends surprisingly well from a graphics perspective. Sora, just to use him as the example, doesn't look any more out of place on Tarzan's world than he does on Hollow Bastion. And Squall doesn't look any more out of place next to next to you know Goofy than he does next to Cloud, for example. I know they don't actually stand stand-by-side in this game, but you know where I'm going with this. So it worked very well. Now, there was also one other thing that Kingdom Hearts has in extensiveness. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in my last video. Forgive me, I didn't bother watching it uh, before uploading it, because it was a long video and frankly I didn't feel like it. Uh, and I did it like five months ago, six months ago actually now. Actually, I think we're into the seven-month range. Whatever. Point being, Kingdom Hearts has always had a very much cool factor. Now, cool factor is much harder to explain than any of the other things I've tried to explain that that can make a game enjoyable. Generally, if you... Cool factor doesn't necessarily mean being powerful or overpowered. (laughs) The badass factor, if you prefer. Cool factor is just oh, that's cool, or oh, that looks cool. It doesn't necessarily have to be the player. It could be the terrain, it could be the enemies, it could be the NPCs, you know, something. But Kingdom Hearts 1 did have very much a cool factor, and I, I forgive me, but I don't know how to explain it much better than that. But the, the, the stuff you could pull off, especially if you're good at the game, and once you start figuring out how to work with the camera and the UE and the jump system and all that fun stuff, you could pull off all sorts of crazy stuff, and it looks awesome, you know, and you're fighting awesome-looking giant doom enemies of awesome and and it just had this general cool factor. I'm sorry for just simplifying it so so succinctly. But it's one of the things that not only was really enjoyed but it was latched onto by the fans and the developers recognized this because every kingdom hearts since then has also been emphasis has placed emphasis upon the cool factor elements. Kingdom Hearts 2 is a great example of that. They really pushed the cool factor element in Kingdom Hearts 2. Uh, kind of too far, actually, if you'll me for saying so, but I'll talk about that later. One last fact I'd like to throw out here. Uh, we're officially hitting the part now where we're going to start talking about spoilers for anybody who cares, I just thought I'd mention that. There was a huge uncertainty as to whether or not Kingdom Hearts would sell. As I mentioned, it was a risk. Uh, that, that probably sounds like me saying, duh, to you, but it was. It was a huge risk, and nobody was certain if it would actually sell or not. Um, in fact, fun fact, if you'll forgive me for throwing out another fact at you here. The, uh... I, think I, uh, I suddenly can't think of it. Sakaguchi, I believe is his name. Forgive me if I'm getting the wrong name. Uh, was involved in the development of Kingdom Hearts. In fact, Kingdom Hearts was basically the last game he had any involvement with within uh, Square. And he... They, they had started working on this. And they... Well, okay, let me take a step back. They wanted to do a game with... With, which was essentially Nintendo and Final Fantasy mixed together. You know, Zelda and Mario and Metroid and all that. That's actually funny that I mentioned that, by the way, because before I knew this fact, uh, one of my favorite alternate Kingdom Hearts-type games was exactly that. Imagine if we had been going to the Mario worlds and the Metroid worlds and the all that instead of the Disney ones, and everyone I, I pitched that idea to's reaction was, Awesome! That would have been so cool! But anyways, that was apparently kind of where they were going with initially, and we'll, we'll probably never know, or at least I will never know why it never actually happened. I did do, try to do some research and basically it never came to anything, but what I do know is that the alternate idea was pitched of, well, why don't we do that kind of a 3D, you know, 3D world thing, Secret of Mana thing, with uh, with Disney. Now, at the time, uh, the offices of the, people, the Disney people who worked in Japan and uh, Square happened to be in the same building. And there was a chance happenstance meeting between, you know, the, the two people and the, the gentleman, uh, I believe it was Sakaguchi again, forgive me if I'm getting the wrong name, said, you know, was just, was, happened to be there in the, in the, in the elevator with the, with the Disney executive. And he happened to be like, well, hey, you know, and he pitched the idea. And that's kind of how that got it started. But the other interesting thing I find about this is as they were working on it, it was very much a kid's game. I've heard some people say Kingdom Hearts, the series, is a kid's game. Those people are idiots. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I usually don't like to draw the line there, but really, ignoring the, the, how horrifying the story is, ignoring the, the fact that it is a tragedy, ignoring the seriousness of how it's presented, I could see people arguing that Kingdom Hearts could be a kid's game. But when I say originally it was a kid's game, I mean originally it was a kid's game. Okay, you, I, I don't even know how to further emphasize this. I can't even think of another game off the top of my head that really gets the point across. It was designed for 14 and under, you know? And uh, Sakaguchi, the, the Final Fantasy... No, Hironobu, right? You know, I'm going to look this up. I'm sorry. I, I have so much respect for the man, I really want to look this up. Is that his name? Hironobu Sakaguchi? Yes, okay, I am getting the right guy. Hironobu Sakaguchi said if we don't make this game with the same level of quality and seriousness of storytelling and character development as we do the Final Fantasy series and do keep in mind at the time you know that the, 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 the CFS series was up to 9 and they were still anyways if we don't put that level of effort and seriousness if we don't treat it with that level of seriousness this, this series will not sell and Fortunately, people listen to them, because I actually agree completely. The Kingdom Hearts series might have kept going if they had made it a kiddie game, if they had made it a, you know, pre-teenager game like they were originally going to do, but I guarantee you it would, wouldn't have sold nearly as well, and those of us who are not of that age group would never have been able to enjoy the awesome story and, and gameplay and all that fun stuff that the Kingdom Hearts series has brought us. So, awesome. But there's one other big thing about this that I wanted to mention. I, th- that was just point one. Uh, point two here is... They didn't know if Kingdom Hearts would do anything, and so when they, when the main guys sat down, Nomura himself being one of the main uh, writers, who would eventually become the writer for the entire series, uh, and eventually, by eventually I mean immediately after Kingdom Hearts 1, sat down and wrote the story of Kingdom Hearts 1, well, there is certainly foreshadowing. It was basically fore... Okay, I, I've written. Be, I've told, talked about to before about how you know when I write, I tend to write skeleton. That is to say, I write a framework and then I fill in the blanks. Right. Um, that's basically what he had done. He had the vaguest ideas of what was going on with the overall setting, but it was all just vague stuff that he hadn't really fleshed out yet. And and, and the reason I bring this up is is because. If you actually analyze the story of all the Kingdom Hearts, the only one that doesn't fit is Kingdom Hearts One. Well, I mean, it does fit, but it doesn't—it doesn't really gel with the other ones nearly as well. And the reason why is—is is what I just came into. Because Kingdom Hearts One was written with the idea that it might fail. It was written as with the idea that this is just its one game. Now they left a hole for a sequel. Of course they did, because they wanted to keep doing this as a series. But the whole story from Birth by Sleep up to 3D hadn't been written yet, if you understand where I'm going with this. Just this one section of it with some vague ideas about, you know, the overall setting had been written. That's one of the reasons why Kingdom Hearts 1 mentions things and does things that doesn't quite fit with everything else. But, while this may sound like a negative overall, uh, I do have to mention two very positive things. One, uh, in the secret ending... They mentioned a whole bunch of different lines that are flung out. Those lines weren't actually designed to be anything. Uh, those were just random lines. Uh, they were f- basically written into the game later, uh, Kingdom Hearts 2 specifically later, to make it fit, which was awesome because they actually managed to pull it off uh, without planning, if you understand what I mean. But two, I definitely have to give the writers and Numura uh, a great deal of credit because. They succeeded at taking what was effectively one story and then fleshing it out both in in both directions, both past and future, and still they did actually make it work. I mean, like I said, it doesn't quite gel as well as everything else does, but they did actually take the game that was effectively written to possibly fail and then say, okay, now let's write the whole mythos. Or mythos, if you prefer, and I mention that specifically because after Kingdom Hearts One succeeded, I'll, I'll mention this again in three fifty-eight or not 358, uh, recom. But uh, once they finished Kingdom Hearts One, once Kingdom Hearts One was was really successful, they sat down and wrote everything else that we've seen about the Kingdom Hearts series. Now there is some contention as to whether or not. Kingdom Hearts 3 has already been writ- was already written at this point in time. We know it's written now. We know that the story for uh 3 is written as of now. But we 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 were not 100% sure if it was written back when he sat down and wrote birth by sleep and uh Recom- or calm and then 358 and then 2 and then recoded and then Triple D. I just thought I'd mention that cuz it's interesting to me. Now, okay. The idea of doing cameos alongside. Well, okay, the way they did cameos. Uh, I, I don't know why I started with this, but whatever, I'm just following my notes here. The way they did cameos was actually a good idea because the cameos weren't just, you know, hi, I'm, you know, Tarzan. Hi, I'm Alice from Wonderland, you know. Uh, in many cases, the cameos would actually join the party for periods of time. And that was good. That was actually really cool. Now, some people would, would not do that, myself included, uh, in more recent play games, but that's because, you know, I've I've kind of leveled Donald and Goofy and specced them out, not this random person who wanted you. but it was a good idea. It was a good idea to actually have Disney characters, and in some cases, uh, Final Fantasy characters, join the party, uh, even if only for a brief period of time, so that it, it just kind of helped flesh it out a little bit, if you understand where I'm going with that. I thought that was a good addition, uh, most especially in Hollow Bastion, which I'll talk about later, of course. I also like the fact that they made a point of having the... I'm trying to think how to put this properly. As I mentioned... Well, okay, no, I guess I haven't mentioned this yet. There, In Kingdom Hearts, there's effectively three types of characters, okay? For all intents and purposes. Um, we have... The, uh. I can't think of her damn names. We have the original characters, what I like to call the Kingdom Hearts characters. Then, uh, immediately following the Kingdom Hearts characters, the, uh, Final Fantasy characters. And then after those, we have the Disney characters, right? The primary story is without question or hesitation about the Kingdom Hearts characters. And that's true across the entire series, by the way. It is all about the Kingdom Hearts characters, the good guys, the bad guys, the in-betweens, the, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> um, but they had excellent usage of both Disney and Final Fantasy characters to not just make them be there be like, Hey, look, it's the, your favorite character from Final Fantasy 7 or whatever. But instead, these characters have something to do with the story. They have something to do with the plot. Now, this is not always true, but for the, uh, especially in Kingdom Hearts 1, but for the most part, every time you'd see someone from the, one of the Final Fantasies or from one of the Disney games, they at least have something to do with the story or the themes or the character development of the characters. You know, something. They, they have some purpose, right? Again, Kingdom Hearts 1 kind of fails on that at some points, but that was an excellent idea. Uh, to use, to use, it's using the tools they had, basically. In other words, it is using the potential that was there properly. And so, I just wanted to give them props for actually having, you know, Sid be someone who is actually relevant to the story, or you know, Sid from FF7 and having squall from ff8 of all characters being relevant to the story you know stuff like that right very good job on that I'd also, i also i just want to take an aside really quick and mention that i like how i like squall in the kingdom hearts series a billion times more than i've i've ever liked him in ff8 anyways moving on uh, now one other thing about kingdom hearts 1 uh Kingdom Hearts 1 has a weird problem with a lot of its cutscenes, and I'm going to call it misuse of music, because I think that's the primary problem. In many cases, there were cutscenes that basically had an awkward quality to them, and really felt like they shouldn't have. You know what I mean? They should have been evoking emotion A, B, or C, and the music and the sound and the, the style, or the lack of music, that's another thing they did often, they would just have no music, and it would sap so much of the... Point, purpose, impact, whatever, of any given scene. And it happens a lot in Kingdom Hearts 1. It does happen throughout the Kingdom Hearts series in general. It's something they've never quite gotten over. And as much as I defend this series and love this series, every time I see any one of these scenes, and it's always obvious because each time there's just this awkward feel to it, it's just like, eh. But that also relates to my next point. Kingdom Hearts 1, specifically... ...feels like it was written to be smaller. It was written to be a shorter game. Uh, to, to, to simplify what I'm about to say excessively... ...there's the intro, there's the prologue... ...and then there's the first section... ...and then there's what, look, what feels like a decent chunk of filler in between... ...and then there's some stuff that actually has to do with the progression of the plot... ...in the later Disney worlds... ...and then there's Hollow Bastion... ...and then the story begins... <laughs> you know where I'm going with this? Anybody who's played this game understands what I mean by this. I actually told a friend of mine who was playing this series for the first time, is this plot ever going to go anywhere? And I was like, alright, just get to Hollow Bastion, and, and you'll be. And he's like, okay, okay. I, I've often heard it said that Kingdom Hearts 1 starts at Hollow Bastion, and there's many reasons for that. I'll get to that later. But my point here is that it feels like they had decided they had written, you know, they had constructed Kingdom Hearts One, and they were like, "Hang on, hang on, hang on, we need to stretch this out more," and so they shoved more Disney worlds into certain points at it. And while they did a decent job with it, all things considered, they do feel kind of disjointed from the rest of the game, especially since in many cases they don't contribute anything to either character development, setting, the plot, or well, I guess that's it, you know. So so they don't. So they're just kind of there for their own sake um kind of an interesting little thing. I'll talk about that more in a point by point thing, but let's talk about Traverse Town first. Traverse Town is extremely well constructed. Uh I mentioned earlier the claustrophobia syndrome Cla- Traverse Town very much very much succeeds at not feeling claustrophobic even though it is actually a fairly small area and it certainly feels much larger than it should be and that's a good thing because Traverse Town not only is has many thematic uh relevances to it but it's supposed to feel important thematically. It's supposed to feel literally to both the player and, of course, to Sora, the main character, like you're taking your first step into a larger world. Literally, because this is the first time he's left his island. A lot of people tend to, to skip over that on, you know, when going to the game because it's not actually emphasized as well as it probably should have been. But do keep in mind, this is literally Sora's first step into another world. There should be some impact to that, and I do like the... The, the design and the thematic layout of Traverse Town does help emphasize that, even if the cutscenes the, and the otherwise don't do it as well as they probably should. Uh, I would also add that this is one of uh, everything I just talked about is something that Kingdom Hearts does beautifully in two separate manners: symbolism. Nomura really, really likes symbolism. I'm not going to cover all the points of symbolism throughout the entire series because that would get old. It's everywhere. But he likes to do two types of symbolism, really, really, really obvious, and really, 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 really subtle. And most of the times, the subtle stuff is only, in fact, in virtually every case, the subtle stuff is only really noticeable on repeat playthroughs, or through deep analysis, which generally involves a repeat playthrough, so whatever. So, overall positives about Traverse Town. I also like the fact that the initial team we encounter is basically Squall, Eris, and Yuffie. I'd also like to, to take an aside and say that, good job to Square, um, it's too easy, especially, well okay, uh, from what I understand, Disney gets a lot of the uh, props for this, but the voice acting for the characters in Kingdom Hearts is actually pretty good, all things considered. It's not great, it's not, you know, StarCraft Two level awesome, but it is very well done, and uh, they did pick some very good voice actors and some very uh, high budget voice actors in several cases. And from what I understand, most of that is because not only did Disney insist, but Disney paid for it because voice acting is is, is expensive. And you know, this was a game they weren't even sure was going to succeed or not. So, yay, <laughs> awesome for that. But I mention this because Kingdom Hearts is the first time we hear a voice for many characters: Eris, Yuffie, Squall, Sid, Cloud. All of these characters are the the very first time we ever hear them voice acted is in Kingdom Hearts One. The voice actor for Cloud, uh, I can't think of his name, I'm sorry, forgive me, Uh, is the same voice actor that's been doing his voice in English, at least. I'm sorry, I'm speaking of English, of course, because I don't know the Japanese voice actors or whatever. But the same English voice actor has been voicing Cloud ever since, ever since he did it here in Kingdom Hearts 1. And the same for Yuffie, and the same for Squall. They did switch the Eris voice actress, which is a shame, because I liked this voice actress, the one they had here, uh, better than the later one but. From what I understand, she wasn't interested in the role, and she was a little too pricey anyways, but whatever. Point is, good job on all that, and they managed to get most of either the original voice actors for the Disney characters, or someone who could do a really good impression of it. And so, Donald sounds like Donald, Goofy sounds like Goofy, you know. And that's another thing we're introduced to right off the bat here, is that these people do sound like they should. Very well done and very excellent job on that. Uh, probably my favorite example of doing a voice properly and noticeably properly is actually Sebastian over in Atlantica, but I just wanted to mention that here because again, it's first impressions are important and it's really good that right here, right off the bat, we are introduced to, you know, so many things. Now I skipped over some, forgive me, let me, let me rewind just a little bit. Actually, you know what, no, I've, I've already kind of screwed up the order, so I'm going to talk about that later. So forgive me. Let's move on to Wonderland. Um, I have only a couple of notes about Wonderland. I already mentioned the claustrophobia thing. But there is one thing I have to mention. Again, good voice acting. Uh, The the woman who did the uh, Queen of Hearts and uh, the woman who does Alice, the girl, whatever, who does Alice. Both very well done and got across the point very well. The fun thing about Wonderland is even though it's... Well, okay, Wonderland is one of the worlds I don't think was filler. As weird as that sounds. And there's two really big reasons for this. One, this is the very first time we were introduced to the concept of the Princesses of Heart. We have no idea what that means. We, In fact, we don't even hear that term here. But this is the first time that that is actually referenced and actually brought up into the story, which is, bec- which is not only a major plot point of this game, but actually becomes a major plot point of the series as a whole that will still act that is still relevant even when Kingdom Hearts 3 comes out. So awesome, very well done on that. The second point is the Cheshire Cat, which was absolute brilliance. Whoever decided to do this, you see, the Cheshire Cat is what I like to call an exposition bonanza. He actually gives away a lot of information, but he does it in his own particular style, because he's the Cheshire Cat. He never comes out and says, A is B. He'll say it in this really roundabout, sing-song, you're-not-100%-sure-what-he's-saying kind of way. I think that was brilliant to have so much information, you know, given away. Basically, right off the bat here, in, in the first Disney World we visit, uh, or, well, it can be the first one, you, you have some option and choices. But anyways, right off the bat, through someone who is speaking in, in riddles and, and in metaphors, so that we could, so that again, you know, the first time through, it's just like, okay, and you may or may not figure it out, it doesn't matter, because the point is, you at least get the idea, and the second time through, you understand fully what he's saying, because you already know all the stuff he's telling you, right? Very good, Dud. Now, I have much less good, <laughs> I have far few good things to say about the deep jungle. That's the Tarzan world. First of all, the level design and layout are terrible. Okay? I'm, I'm just going to lay this out flat. They are bad. And very poorly guided is the word I want to use. And it's, it's effectively a pseudo-maze. And I say pseudo because it's not actually a maze. It's just poorly designed. I know at least four people off the top of my head, including myself. I freely debase myself here. Who got lost our first time through Deep Jungle badly, in some cases over the hour or two-hour mark, just because of how badly designed that place was. And I don't mean lost like in one spot, I mean, you know, okay, we figured out where this next cutscene is where we have to be. Uh, okay, uh, hang on, let me, no, not this way, hang on, let me go back, no, not this way. And it was just, ah, oh, God! One other important thing, though, about the Deep Jungle, with the, ex- with the possible exception of one scene, the Deep Jungle serves no purpose. It is pure filler. It is there because it's a Disney world, and like I said earlier, they were trying to pad out the middle of the game. We don't learn anything more about the plot. We don't learn anything more about the Heartless. We don't learn anything learn any more about... I haven't even talked about the Heartless. yet, I? Anyway. We don't learn anything more about, you know, the overall setting or the story or, any, or... no. The only thing that could be considered to be relevant at all, in my opinion, about the Deep Jungle, is the scene in which... Uh, Cloud, uh, I'm sorry, Cloud, Sora, and Donald are actually happy to see each other. Now, I'll mention that later, but frankly, the story still could have gone on without that scene, so honestly, you could literally just take the deep jungle and remove it from the game, and, and I don't think the game would suffer in any way for it. Now, let's move on to Hercules. Hercules' is level, which I don't remember what it's called, I, I don't care, it's the Colosseum. Unlike unlike the deep jungle, the Colosseum was was not only awesome, but very relevant to the story. Well, okay, somewhat relevant to the overall story because well, let's talk about the awesome factor. First of all, James Woods. Uh, it has been James Woods has gone on record saying any time they bring Hades back, in a in a Kingdom Hearts game, he he would uh, gladly voice it. That is one of the reasons why Hades has been in so many of the Kingdom Hearts games voice acted is because of that. Because he just kept being like, yeah, I'll do the part again. It's awesome. Um, In case anyone was wondering about that. But, in addition to James Wood's awesomeness, the cutscenes in Hercules' area are generally very well done. Even though, I I admit it has always weirded me out horribly that the Colosseum where you're actually fighting in is totally and utterly devoid of people. Even though you hear crowds... I know, I know, this is a weird and stupid complaint, but it's always just niggled in the back of my mind. It's always bothered me just a little bit, you know. Yeah, we're the champs! And you hear the pause, and you're just in this completely empty stadium. And it gets this kind of creepy vibe about it, but anyways, we're just gonna move on from that. My point is that the stuff there is fun. The Danny DeVito uh, guy, I, it's not, I believe it's not actually Danny DeVito, it's someone else, does a good job of... Uh, The Seder, I can't even think of his damn name. You know, everyone does a good job of the voice acting. The characters are likable. And some of the scenes are genuinely funny. But it's, like I said, it's also relevant to the story for two big reasons. One, it's the introduction of Cloud. Uh, This is not me being an FF7 fanboy. I mention this because Cloud is actually an excellent example, even in FF7, of the dichotomy of light and darkness. And using him as a way to exemplify that within Kingdom Hearts was a good idea, in my opinion, whether he was popular or not. And two, related to that, Cloud and Sora have a discussion about searching for their light. Now, this discussion is actually very relevant because it brings up a point that will be very... Crucial to many of the character developments and many, many of the uh, story progression throughout the entire series, and that is that different people view the light in different ways. I mean, obviously, you know, they're all searching for the light, but when one person says the light, they don't mean the same person, they don't, they are not referring to the same specific thing as another person. And different people have different sources of light. I'm searching for my light. In fact, I believe that's almost exactly what Sora says. I'm searching for my light too as he's talking to Cloud. This is the first time this is ever brought up, and this will be brought up again and again throughout the course of the series, so that was very relevant and uh, very well done, all things considered. This is also the first hint of the triad. Uh, I'll talk about the triad later, but I just wanted to mention that this is the first time that the whole triad thing becomes obvious from a thematic perspective and not just a the three kids perspective. Again, I'll get to that later. Let's move on to Agrabah. I'm sorry. Agraba is probably the worst example in Kingdom Hearts 1 of a problem that I've kept silent about so far. But the Kingdom Hearts since series in general does it, and I will mention it again in Kingdom Hearts 2, because there's a couple worlds where it's even worse in Kingdom Hearts 2, believe it or not. Rehashing the movie syndrome, okay? Now, sometimes when they rehash the movie, they will do... Okay, let me explain what that means. Uh when you visit World Disney World A, Agraba in this case, they assume that the events of the movie, Aladdin, haven't happened yet, and so they kind of go through the, the motions of the movie during the course of you going through the world in the game, right? Now, that I think that's a bad idea in general, to be a little bit blunt with you, but I will admit that if it it, it does and has been uh, done properly, and, and it will be done properly throughout the series in several cases, where if if you're rehashing the movie, you do it while weaving the elements of the game and the elements of, or, of the story and the themes and and the relevance thereof into the into the movie, then that can actually work. But in some cases, they basically just rehash the plot of the movie, and you're along for the ride. And Agraba is probably the worst example in one in Kingdom Hearts one of this. So as much as I love the music of Agrabah, and I do. And as much as I love the visual design of Agrabah, and I do, despite the claustrophobia syndrome really badly in the city, every time I get to Agrabah, I just kind of groan a little bit, because it's just like, alright, let's go ahead and do the thing again. And it also feels like they were trying a little bit too hard with the genie. No offense to Dan Castellaneta, or however the hell you pronounce his name, because he's a great voice actor. But it it felt like they were really pushing too hard to make the genie wacky. And it just kind of falls flat on its face. So I really... Now I will say uh, one thing that is positive about Agra, and that is the Cave of Wonders, which is how you do a maze properly. Its layout, by contrast, was not confusing at all. It made perfect sense, everything flowed properly. Uh, When you fall into a pit, you fall into an area that's immediately below you, and it's got its own little, you know, structure. And it was basically a two-story dungeon, for all intents and purposes. And that worked really well, all things considered. So definite props there for the level designers doing that more uh, better. More better. I will also mention that this is our second mention of the Princesses of Heart, uh, Jasmine in this case. And it is mentioned, at least in passing, that... There is a relevance to that, other than we're just rehashing the movie. But overall, I just kind of don't like this world in Kingdom Hearts 1. Now, I want to talk about Halloween Town next, but I'm not going to, because I'm going to talk about Monstro next, because I hate Monstro. (laughs) I don't know anybody who's ever played this game personally, which is only like six people, admittedly, who likes Monstro. It's kind of funny, though. Because Monstro, uh, as far as a lore and story perspective, is, again, one of those critical points in the story. So why do we hate Monstro? Well, first of all, it's frickin' Monstro. It's a damn giant whale in space. Who's just flowing through space, by the way. Whatever, okay, Disney, sure, fine. But what the hell? Second of all, the design of the interior is not... Obviously, they couldn't make it gross and be like an actual inside of a well. But it, what it is, is more like a, a, a acid trip or something. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what acid trip looks like, but you know, it just looks like you're on drugs of some sort. The whole place has this weird, unpleasant design to it, and it has one of the worst layouts of all the of all the worlds. Not as bad as ju- jungle. Nothing as bad as a teeth jungle. But the overall design of this attempt at a maze is terrible, and ugh, is all I can really say to that. Every time I get to Monstro, it's just like, alright, let's get through the maze so I can see the awesome. I mentioned the awesome. Like I said, this is a very critical uh, story point for two very big reasons. I haven't talked about Riku much yet. And I won't until we get to the end of this thing. But I'm going to mention Riku briefly here. This is a big character moment for Riku. It's it's the first time he's actually joined up with Sora since the beginning of the game. Uh, Actually, theoretically, it's the first time he's joined up with Sora, period. And it also is Riku demonstrating his... the fact that he's getting a little bit too much of tunnel vision, and the fact that he is descending, is the word I want to use. I'll go into that more later. But there's one other very important thing that is mentioned here, and I'm going to summarize it with uh, four simple words, okay? Pinocchio has a heart. Now, that may not sound relevant to you or me, but this is the first time it is established throughout the entire series, actually, that individuals that are not people can still have hearts. This is something that will be covered in the future as well throughout the series. The, I mean, obviously the worlds have hearts, we know that, and we know that people, you know, living sentient beings have hearts, but this is the first time it is firmly established that a, a puppet, a walking doll, Something that is not a person, by most standards of the, def- of the definition, still has a heart. And that is very relevant for defining what heart actually means throughout the Kingdom Hearts series, and emphasizing the importance thereof, again, throughout the series. So I just thought I'd mention that there. Now let's rewind a bit and go back to Halloween Town. Halloween Town is semi-important for story and plot reasons, but even if it wasn't, Halloween Town is one of the worlds that most people enjoy. Even PAX enjoyed Halloween Town. Because A, most people who don't even like Disney tend to still enjoy The Nightmare Before Christmas, and B, because it's fun. The The layout of most of the areas, with, with one exception, are, is really well done. The fights are fun. The, bo- the, the pseudo-boss fights and the boss fights are fun. The dialogue is good, You know the voice acting is at least passable. You know, all 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 things considered, Halloween Town is just fun. It it's it's a very well constructed, very well done uh, world, in and of itself. So even if it had nothing to do with the plot, like you know, Deep Jungle did, it would still be fun to go through. Now, Halloween Town is one of those examples of a, a degree of subtlety, with regards to the symbolism I mentioned earlier, and, and the relevance to the plot. Uh, like I said, in, in Agrabah, or not Agraba, I'm sorry, in uh, Monstro, it was pretty obvious in Right in your Face. In Halloween Town, we learn two really important things. Well, okay. We learn one really important thing, and it means two things. One, even those who are not evil, even those who do not have dark intent, can be lured to the darkness. The idea of controlling the heartless is what they show in, in Halloween Town, and that's from someone who is basically speaking with, from innocence, from relative lack of, in, of knowledge and information. That's actually going to be really important throughout the course of the entire series, but it also emphasizes a point that is very important. Well, but I, I'm sorry, I'm doing this in the wrong order. It, men- it it. It shows the insidiousness of the heartless, first of all. how easy it is for them to work their way into a world, how incredibly easy it is for a Heartless to actually be... to infiltrate, to spread, to grow. I mean, they're one of the most insidious, mindless hordes I've seen in fiction uh, when it comes down to it, because it is so, so very easy for them to get just about anywhere. You know, there is darkness in every heart, if you'll remember the quote, which is actually not true, but whatever. But the second point, and the point I started saying first, is this is basically the very first step to something that's going to be a hugely important point to the entire Kingdom Hearts series, which can be summarized very simply. Darkness is not evil. That is going to become very relevant throughout the course of the series, and it is advanced right here in the very first game, right here at Halloween Town, is the first time we see that. The, the idea that darkness by itself is not evil. I'll talk about that more later. I, I apologize for getting, I keep saying that. Hey, I got a couple more worlds to go through. Oh God, I'm starting to hurt, but it's okay. I can do this. I can do this. Prairie Strats. Okay, Atlantica. Atlantica. <laughs> Atlantica. I actually enjoy a lot. Uh, I know I'm I'm one of the only people who really likes Atlantica in the first Kingdom Hearts, but I really really enjoy the three dimensional movement. I think it worked great. I think it was a lot of fun. I think Ursula was beautifully done both from a, from a story and voice acting perspective and from the perspective of fighting her. I think her boss fights were both very enjoyable, especially the second one. I mentioned that. That was the first time I ever played Kingdom Hearts was fighting Ursula the second time. I thought it was awesome. I still enjoy that fight a lot. And the again, this is another sort of rehash of the movie, but they rehashed the movie in a way that was A, enjoyable. Yay you know, kind of the Halloween town thing, and B, in a manner that actually had some degree of relevance to the the overall plot, which I'm not gonna mention. This is kind of funny because they hadn't actually gone anywhere with this, but I'll just say this with terms that you probably don't understand if you've never played this series. Atlantica is the first reference to the Keyblade War. It's the first reference ever to the Keyblade War. That's really funny if you think about it because the Keyblade War hadn't actually been written yet, as I mentioned much earlier. It was just an, it was barely even an idea and a concept. It was just something they left here in case they ever wanted to go back to that uh, concept. because the, and to summarize for what actually they say in literalness, as opposed to symbolism or metaphoric or thematic, is the idea that the keyblade can bring ruin. The idea that there and, and that also uh, gave us the idea of the concept that there are both light and dark keyblades. And we are left wondering a very interesting question: which one are we wielding? I'll mention that later too. Neverland was awesome, in my opinion. The guy who played Captain Hook. Well, okay, first of all, the writers did a perfect job with Captain Hook. He should always be that perfect blend of threatening, silly, and hilarious. Because, you know, he's this eye oh, on this. I, I can't do the vice at all, but the guy who did the voice was doing a brilliant job. But he really does need to be just as horrible as he is hilarious, and they do a really good job of that. The fan- I also want to make an aside that say the flight mechanic worked really well too. I just mentioned the 3D thing, and uh, the Phantom, who you fight here, the super optional, bo- well, one of the optional bosses. I'm sorry, who you fight here was a really well designed optional boss, given the fact that it was done fully in 3D with the flight mechanic and the whole stopping mechanic. It was it, very, very well done. I very much enjoyed uh, the Phantom fight here. Just thought I'd mention that. I also like Kurt Ziza, I just didn't really have anything else to add to that. However, before I talk about the obvious thing, I want to talk about the subtle thing. In Neverland, Riku manages to make... Riku makes another appearance, and it's another step in his character arc and the overall plot. Again, Neverland is very relevant to the, to the main plot. It very much feels like it was, part, it was written from the beginning, you know what I mean? Uh, and this is when Riku pulls a shadow out of Sora, and you end up fighting him uh, in the course of the game a pseudo-heartless shadow Sora thing that will later on become used again in Kingdom Hearts 2. (laughs) A question I don't hear a lot of people ask is where did that come from? Given what we know about Sora throughout the course of the series, which I will talk about towards the end of this video, it does not, it would not actually surprise me if that was not just a construct, basically. That was not just Riku you know, turning Sora's shadow, shadow, into a construct that then fight him. that that was basically him pulling some of the darkness out of Sora's heart and manifesting it in a manner that would actually basically be a, be, be a pseudo-heartless, for all intents and purposes. Not a full heartless, obviously, because that doesn't happen yet, but a pseudo-heartless, a semi-heartless, if you understand where I'm going with this. And that's important for several reasons, not the least to which to demonstrate a there is darkness in Sora's heart. B, Riku doesn't have total control over the Heartless, but also there's another theory here, C, which kind of contradicts what I was just saying and at the same time complements it. In other words, that that wasn't a pseudo-Heartless, that was simply darkness. In other words, that Riku doesn't have control over the Heartless like so many of the other villains do. He has control over the darkness and that is not. That is so much more, and that is so much more impacting, so much more relevant, so much more important, and becomes such a a, a bigger thing, especially throughout the course of the series. I personally tend to lean myself towards that theory, that what he just did is he pulled some of Sora's darkness out and didn't make it into a Heartless. He made it into, you know, Sora's darkness, which was then defeated. But that's just me. And I'm probably reading too much into things, because that's what I do. (laughs) One last point before I really get into the story, because we've kind of been leaving it alone, uh, honestly. Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh in Kingdom Hearts 1 was simultaneously done perfectly and absolutely wrong. The writing was spot on. All the characters were written and voice acted how they should be. Exactly how they should be. They, it very much was Winnie the Pooh. You know, they, they, you could tell that it was Winnie the Pooh. They were acting just like themselves, just like they should be. Everything was spot on. Brilliantly done. Loved it. However, Winnie the Pooh involves a lot of minigames. I haven't really talked about the minigames much, nor will I, uh, other than this one point here. The mini games in Kingdom Hearts 1 in general kinda suck, and no nowhere more so than here. Oh my god, I wanted to kill myself every time I played those frickin' mini games in the Winnie the Pooh section. They were terrible. They were poorly designed, irritating, frustrating as hell. It was exactly what difficulty shouldn't be. AKA frustrating. And I'm not gonna talk any more about it because I don't feel like it. I've only done I've only done all of the minigames once, uh well twice actually, once the first time and then the second time when I did the hundred percent run. And I'm never doing them again. Ever. Let's move on. Then we hit Hollow Bastion. As I've said before, Hollow Bastion's kind of where the game starts. And that's because every one of the previous worlds has been relatively small in terms of both size and... and how long it takes to go through them. And, with the exception of a few worlds, the story and the plot has only been inching forward. The moment we hit Hollow Bastion, everything hits into full gear. Hollow Bastion is pretty much a non-stop story, all things considered. Just tons and tons of exposition, plot, cutscene, character development, everything. And uh, development of the setting, as we find out that Hollow Bastion used to be the, the world that the Final Fantasy characters lived on prior to Maleficent nearly destroying it. And that's so very Maleficent, by the way. But I'd also just like to take a moment say, as an aside and say that I love the fact that they picked... The, of all the Disney villains they could choose from to be the big one in Kingdom Hearts series, they chose Maleficent. I mention that because she kind of sucked as a villain, all things considered, in Sleeping Beauty, if you really think about it. But if you look at her outside of Sleeping Beauty, if you just, looked at, if you just were shown a picture of her and heard her voice... She does very much suit the idea of the classic Type 1, you know, darkness-related villain, doesn't she? And they do that really, really, really well in Kingdom Hearts 1. She comes across as genuinely menacing, genuinely powerful, genuinely, you know, everything. It is very well done, and I love what they did with Maleficent in Kingdom Hearts 1. She's had several cutscenes up until this point that I haven't really mentioned, just because I wanted to mention it here. They really did an awesome job with Maleficent, and uh, very much props on that. I like the fact that she's the big Disney villain, uh, for all intents and purposes, throughout the whole series. So Maleficent, the, the visual design, the audio design, the aesthetic of Hollow Bastion is basically perfect. I, 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 you, you need to look it up. Uh, you need to see it to really understand what I mean. But the, okay, first of all, you start off on these waterfalls, that, and you look up, and as you go up, you see in the distance just nothing. There's, there's nothing left. It's just this empty, hollow world because almost all of the world was consumed when the heartless came. But Maleficent specifically kept her castle, the hollow, you know, the bastion itself, and the castle itself is. Uh, Fascinating because it's like part construct, part, you know, standard Disney fantasy uh, castle, and it's part kind of organic, hollowed out. And if you look at it, it's actually a perfect metaphor for what Kingdom Hearts is. It is a combination of the serious with the Disney with the, you know, with, with the Final Fantasy thing. It, it's it's it's, it's the, the, the amalgamation that Kingdom Hearts is demonstrated visually within the design of that castle. And below the castle, there's this hollow, empty void of whatever was there before. That's just this, you know, you're walking on this water that doesn't look like it actually has any bottom to it. And you're going through these empty cavernous sections. And if you look at the art design, you see that there's just this vast, empty space beneath the castle. And it's, re- oh God, it's beautiful. It's really well done. This is also our one, and basically only, shot at looking at a world that has been partially consumed by the Heartless, rather than fully. Now, the usage of Beast is fascinating here. I'm gonna mention this only in in brief, even though this deserves more talking in, upon, but I like the idea of the usage of Beast here because, A, it shows the possibility of travel between worlds, even those who are unequipped if you're sufficiently motivated this. Uh, Riku himself actually does this earlier uh, from Neverland, from the ship, just before this. Uh, and two... Well, honestly, I kind of wish we'd actually seen Beast's Castle in Kingdom Hearts 1. I think that they've actually added the, the beginning of the Beast storyline here. Well, okay they did, obviously, but if they'd done it differently, that we could see the beginning of where Beast's story arc would go. Because Beast actually does have a story arc, believe it or not, uh, which is mostly explored in 2, but also mentioned in 358. Namely, the idea that someone is not evil again, but will fall into darkness simply because of his own emotional turmoil. And I would have liked to see that begun here in Kingdom Hearts 1 rather than just have him be going after Bell, but Whatever. That's that's a minor thing. He was still well-used in this. I also really, really, really love this scene. Okay. This is where we first learn... Uh, okay, I'm not even sure where to start with this. I love the scene between Sora and Riku. Now, Riku is pretty much full-on giving in to the darkness at this point. He's not there yet. He will be shortly. But it's kind of showing in his attitude all things considered, because he's always been leaning that way in general. And he... When, when he tosses the wooden sword at Sora, he does it with such condescension. Because, as we learn here, the keyblade that is being wielded at the moment, the kingdom key, was always supposed to be Riku's. However, Riku's heart was weak, when it was going to be given to him, so Sora ended up taking it instead for various reasons, which I'm not even going to begin to go into, probably not in this whole video even. The interesting thing about that is that... well, okay. (laughs) God, I I have so many things to talk about about this. Let's start with how this is the first time we start to see the what, what is arguably the biggest theme of the entire series, and that is the strength of the heart, or hearts, actually, would be more accurate. Sora has just gone through all these adventures and done all these things, and fought his way here, and he learns that he is not actually the Keyblade Master, and his friends, Donald and Goofy, have just abandoned him. And he is left with a wooden sword. Now, Beast still wants to go after Belle, And Sora looks at Beast, and in that he realizes that he has a choice. He can give up, or he can keep going. And so he picks up a wooden sword, and keeps going. And again, beautiful example of gameplay and story integration. You actually fight with the wooden sword for this first section of Hollow Bastion. And it's awesome, in in, in its brutality. Because you have a frickin' wooden sword in one of the most concentrated places of Heartless and in the entire setting at the moment. That works out really well, all things considered. And then you have the next scene where you encounter Riku, and Sora basically confronts him and says something that... sounds a little cheesy, probably because it is, but I like because it emphasizes, again, that theme of Kingdom Hearts in general and it speaks to the nature of Sora, which I will not be discussing in this video. His words are, almost direct quote if you'll forgive me, my friends are my power. And so even as Riku is ready to strike him down, shoot him down actually, Sora is prepared to fight him back. Even though all he has is a wooden sword, and even though Beast has abandoned him, he is ready to fight this. And Goofy runs forward and helps defend him, and Donald runs forward and helps defend him, and Sora gets the Keyblade back, and then ends up defeating Riku, and Riku runs. Now the reason he got the Keyblade back is because, even though it was originally intended to be Riku's, Sora's heart was stronger. But Sora's heart was not stronger in a vacuum, if you understand what I mean. Sora's, Sora was not just yeah, I'm over 9,000 heart. No, no, he, he had the connection of the other hearts to strengthen his own. That's one of the things I actually do like about Sora, even though I generally don't like the character, especially in 2. He is not only a character who, who is, does not operate in a vacuum, but he is well aware of that fact. And he knows that he depends on others in order to be able to keep going the way he does. I also love this scene for two big reasons. One, it demonstrates Riku's greatest downfall, and one of the reasons why he falls so hard in this first game is pride. More than anything else, Riku has always pushed himself to be the best, because he was the best. And this is one of the first times it's really been shoved right in his face that he isn't, that someone is better than him. And you'll notice immediately after this is when he finally falls. I'll get to that in just a moment. But two, and far more importantly, I've heard some people complain about Donald and Goofy in the series. I not only have no problem with them, I love Donald and Goofy within the Kingdom Hearts series. I mean this sincerely. And I absolutely love the fact that Donald and Goofy and Sora are not just friends... They are basically Nakama, uh, if I'm using the word correctly. Forgive me, my Japanese is not fantastic. They are in it for the long haul. They, and and I love that because even though they started off basically strangers, you don't go through as much stuff as they've gone through together without forming some kind of bond one with another. You just don't. That's not how that works. As you two work together, as you three actually work together and bond and firm work and together, you know, it's the Three Musketeers thing. They, they even reference this in the game, the Three Musketeers things, All for one and one for all. That really is where it's at. And this was the biggest example of this. Goofy and Donald, who are incredibly loyal to King Mickey, deliberately disobey King Mickey's orders because their friendship and their connection with Sora is more important to them. If you'll forgive me for quoting Star Trek Six of all things, even though this actually didn't make it into the script of the movie... If I ever had to choose between betraying my country or betraying my friend, I hope to God I have the guts to betray my country. I've always enjoyed that concept. If, if, if used right, if used properly, that emphasizes how important the bonds of fellowship that people can have can be. And I like that they show that so powerfully with this scene between, of all characters, Donald, Goofy, and Sora. Love that. Um now ah oh god i've got so much else to talk about this thing okay uh let's um hang on i got to read my notes here give me just a moment i i just went off on a bit of a tangent there with that scene forgive me oh this is also an excellent point to to bring up something else the one big, true, massive, huge difference between Sora and Riku is that Sora had Donald and Goofy. Now, I mean this very sincerely. Sora and Riku both ended up getting sucked away by the darkness, plopped out somewhere where they had where they had no idea what was going on, and they were cast aside and lost and all that and all that horrible stuff, right? Through sheer circumstance, Riku ends up with Maleficent that doesn't work out well. But Sora ends up with Donald and Goofy. Now, I say Riku ends up with Maleficent, but I'm actually gonna ignore that for the point, because ultimately he doesn't actually have anyone, is my point. Riku is, for all intents and purposes, operating in a vacuum, and Sora is not. It is extremely likely that things would have gone completely differently, and indeed much, much, much worse, if Sora did not have his the backing, the the, the help, the support, of Donald and Goofy, if he did not have his friend, or at least his people who had become his friends, helping him along the way, it is very likely he would have fallen just as bad and just as hard as Riku did if he didn't have someone supporting him the whole way. And again, another major theme of the thing. But I love that because it really does show that Riku and Sora ultimately are not actually all that different from each other. Not when it comes down to it. Riku takes himself much more seriously than Sora does, as we especially see this later in like, say, 2 and DDD. But ultimately, both of them have the same problems, both of them have the same issues uh, with their emotions and with taking care of themselves, you know, the same flaws, in other words. And both of them have darkness in their hearts. Now, I'm going to use that to segue into uh, just talking about something very interesting to me. Some people assume that Sora was just, you know, the Avatar of Light or whatever. That's actually not true. That's Mickey, by the way. Uh, Mickey is the Avatar of Light for all intents and purposes. But Sora does, in fact, have darkness in his heart. And he has light. Um, I'm debating if I really want to talk about this here or not. I'm actually actually not going going to. I'm going to move ahead further. Forgive me. I'll talk about that later. Let's talk about Maleficent. This is where we really start to see Maleficent be stretched out as a character. And we learn that she is... For This is actually a very important plot point, all things considered. It's what I like to call the you're an idiot syndrome. And I mean this sincerely. Uh, best example I could ever come up with is the Alien series, the movie series. Weyland-Yutani, you're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> the idea here is the concept behind seeing something horribly powerful and awful and, 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 you know, basically mindless, basically bestial, and saying, I want to control that for my own ends. About 90% of the time, that doesn't end well, especially in fiction. Uh, And Maleficent, for all her power, for all her knowledge, for all her composure, we are shown in this just how little control she actually had, and how much of a pawn of the Heartless she really was. Even though, again, you know, you're an idiot. You were trying to control this vast, powerful force for your own ends, thinking you were in charge the whole time. No. You you were nothing more than another stepping stone for them. They probably barely even acknowledge you. You know, as much as a heartless can acknowledge anyone. Uh, this is also... Well, okay. This is also where we truly learn the importance of the princesses of heart, which will be more important throughout the rest of the series. And quite a few very important events happen with regards to Kairi and Sora and Riku. At this point we're basically in full, full uh, spoiler mode by the way. This is the big twist of Kingdom Hearts I'm about to spoil for you. So you have now been warned if you care. Throughout this game we've been receiving these things called Ansem reports and we learned that Ansem was a kind and wise leader who was in charge of the Final Fantasy world once upon a time and he was also a researcher. He was researching, you know, the Heartless and the Darkness. Well, turns out that Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, is in fact the villain. He, uh, this is when we first, well, we've actually met him before, but this is when he finally reveals himself. He tells Riku, who has just had his pride brutally destroyed by Sora, all you have to do in order to truly become darkness is to fully accept the darkness. Now, while there is a degree of truth to that statement, Ansem was lying completely to him. And Ansem used Riku's acceptance of the darkness to take over his body because Ansem had abandoned his body in order to be able to travel the worlds freely and without fear. He was effectively just a a function of darkness. Um, so at this point we we finally start Ansem finally starts to talk. Boy, he loves to monologue too, doesn't he? I love it though. They do this wonderful effect where the voice actor who plays Riku and the voice actor who plays Ansem, who at this point was Billy Zane, who was awesome, um, are both talking over all his lines simultaneously. And because he's Ansem, he knows a lot of things that everyone else doesn't. He is also the one who reveals where Kairi's heart has been this entire time. In Sora. It has been hiding in Sora. That's also something that will become relevant later for reasons I will not go into in this video, but suffice it to say, this is where everything starts to really fragment as far as the entire series goes i don't mean fragment in a bad way i mean like this is where the dominoes really start to fall in this scene because sora ends up fighting riku riku ants him, whatever beats him and then takes the uh takes the keyblade uses it on himself with a smile by the way which was really actually really awesome i thought because that's been a recurring theme throughout the whole thing yeah no sad faces and so he uses the Keyblade on himself to unlock his, to unlock the hearts, plural, within him. This is a bit of a spoil for later, but I cannot mention this without saying this. There are actually three hearts. Possibly more, but three we, we are definite about that were within Sora as of this point in time. I'm not going to mention the third, what the third one was, but it, I'll, I'll talk about that more later. But his own heart and Kairi's heart, right? Ah, uh, now, Kyrie's heart is released, returns to her, and she gets up just in time to see Sora vanish as his heart is disintegrated. Or his body is disintegrated with the loss of his heart, creating Sora's heartless. If we ever had any doubt that there was darkness in Sora's heart, that has been obliterated because he became a heartless. The reason Kyrie didn't become a heartless was because she had zero darkness in her heart. That's also going to be important. What follows is what I consider one of the most awesome parts of the whole game, where you play Sora as a heartless, just a dinky little plain old heartless, hopping around in the cutest manner possible through Hollow Bastion as you follow the party. And then what ends up happening is Kyrie shears a bit of her own heart back to Sora in order to reconstruct Sora as an actual person. All of those events I just mentioned are going to shape the events of the next three games. I'm not kidding. That's all I'm going to mention now. Now, let's see here. Anything else I want to mention here? Let's go ahead and and skip forward just a little bit, because that's basically the end of the Hollow Bastion thing. But I want to mention one thing that I really like, the, uh, again, gameplay story integration. One of the things that happens following this is Ansem has opened up the door to darkness, basically. He has made a portal straight through uh, to the act- to the end of the world, actually. And this has just unleashed Heartless everywhere. And this is true in game, too. Every You can go to every world throughout the course of the game, and they have bigger and stronger and more Heartless than they did before. It's a minor thing, and it doesn't really have... Much to do with the story other than what I already, you know, other than the obvious. But I like like it because it is very much, again, story, gameplay, integration. Everywhere is being swarmed by Heartless, not just in story, but in actuality. I like that. Let's talk about the end of the world. The end of the world is absolutely incredible. One of my favorite last dungeons ever. It is beautiful. Beautiful. I'm sorry, I don't have words for it. I really don't. It is a perfect visual and audio demonstration of what the end of the world is, which is... It's actually better described as a nobody of of worlds, but since uh, you may not know what that term yet means yet, let me just simply say that when the Heartless eat a world, there are bits and pieces of that world left over. Hollow Bastion was an example of one of those pieces being kept in one spot. But in this case... uh, in most cases, in most all the cases, those bits and pieces are all dragged here, to the core of darkness, which is where the end of the world sits, uh, and kind of shoved together into this amalgamation world, which is what the end of the world is. It is the combination of all the dead bits of the worlds that the Heartless have consumed. And it looks like it. All all kinds of looks like it. And it sounds like it, and the music is, is incredible, and, and the, the combat is incredible, and the it, it's almost... It, I've mentioned before how I don't like weird for weird's sake, but I, I do like weird for, for a good sake, for symbolic sake. Everything in the end of the world looks very stylized and very artistic and very, you know, whatever the word you want to use here. But it is all done in the emphasis of explaining what and how this place is, and it is extremely well done. Uh, one of the things I want to also mention, the I, I know you don't, I haven't really talked about nobodies yet, but the contrast between the world that never was and the end of the world is incredible, and it's also is true for the the, the two planet bosses, um, because the nobodies are int- intellect, they follow the mind, so they are very artificial looking, it is very robotic, very constructed looking. The heartless are all instinct because they're following the heart and so everything here is very organic, very fluid, very, you know, morphic, very down to earth, whatever you want to call it. So everything here looks very much like that and that also emphasizes what the Heartless really are. Again, basically just pure instinct uh, and nothing else. There are also there's something else that I know uh, some people have actually missed in the End of the World, so I thought I'd mention it here. There are tiny dinky little references to Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, and Snow White. I mentioned those Because all of those worlds have, in fact, been consumed by the Heartless in Kingdom Hearts 1. And you do see tiny little bits and pieces of them in the end of the world. So, nice touch there. The final scene with Ansem is absolutely amazing. I mean, yes, the monologue is great. And yes, it's showing off Billy Zane's final voice. You know, wonderful voice talent. But it really does emphasize his mindset and his mentality beautifully. Because... This is going to sound really weird, but in Kingdom Hearts 1, we get the distinct impression that Ansem is nowhere near as evil as many of the other characters we've seen before, including Maleficent herself. That Ansem really does genuinely believe what he says about, you know, darkness is the heart's true essence, and all hearts are born from darkness, and so must all hearts end. And, you know, everything he says there, he speaks very specifically, and his word choice is very concrete, and you get the general impression that he really does think everything should be dissolved into darkness. That's the way things should be. Now, we do know, thanks to the rest of the series, that that is actually not what he is saying, so it is possible he was just monologuing for the the sake of monologuing, or it is possible that he just well, I'll talk about the other aspect of what it's possible later, but suffice it to say that within the confines of Kingdom Hearts 1, it was an excellent mind, uh, peek into the mindset of the, of the main villain, who we've basically barely seen throughout this whole thing. The final fights were pretty fun, not too hard, but I do love the significance of the first few final fights happening on Destiny Islands. I'm going to go ahead and say why here, even though this is a spoiler. Uh, the gentleman that Ansem, the, the Seeker of Darkness, is or was, I should say, before he became, you know, the ultimate heartless. Uh, he, uh, he's from Destiny Islands. He was born there, and so having the final fight between Ansem, who was from Destiny Islands, and Sora, who was from Destiny Islands, and that's also where the game began and now where the game ends. You, you get where I'm going with this. Again, this is both obvious and and subtle symb- symbolism, all in the same thing. I do like the book ending of of having it there. Uh, I will also mention that they used excellent use of the lighting effects during several of the final battles, because so much of the areas where, you know, you're in darkness, it actually looks kind of light, all things considered. You know, there's plenty of lighting, there's plenty of gray, you can still see what's going on. However, for several sections of the final battle, it gets genuinely dark to the point where you can barely see where you're going, and all you can see is the 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 Heartless's eyes, actually, because you can't even see the Heartless running around. That was really well done, and really got across the emphasis of just how far into the darkness you have fallen at this point. Now, in my opinion, Kingdom Hearts 1 uh, arguably has the least tragic ending of the Kingdom Hearts series. Uh, The whole series of Kingdom Hearts is a tragedy. I've never heard anyone argue with me on this, and I will talk about more of that as the videos progress. But in Kingdom Hearts 1, we have a bittersweet ending. So let's, let's do a quick roll call here, okay? After we defeat Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, the door to the the door to darkness is closed. Oh, by the way, we also get a peek in through the door of the darkness, and we see that on the other side, it's even worse. It, that is the realm of darkness on the other side of that. In other words, if you're paying attention, by the way, we are uh, the whole time we've been doing this at the end of the world, we're actually not in the darkness per se. Yes, that's right, we haven't even actually been in the darkness yet. We have been at the terminus point. Excuse my awning. We've been at the terminus point, in between light and dark. And as we look through the door, we see the actual Realm of Darkness on the other side. Riku is already over there, because that's kind of what happened to his body after Ansem was defeated and, you know, lost it, basically. And Mickey is over there. Now, Mickey can handle the the Realm of Darkness, because he is the Avatar of Light. Riku, a little more worried about him. But we end up having to close the door to the Realm of Darkness, because duh we have to we have to close the portal between the realm of darkness and the light or else one will flood into the other and things bad things may happen so we end up sealing riku and Mickey in the realm of darkness sora donald uh, after that the realms the body the the worlds reconstitute themselves from the pieces and everywhere go back goes back to where it should have been previously you know all those worlds are reconstructed from the the ashes so to speak And Sora, Donald, and Goofy are left to realm in what we find out later is actually known as the In-Between Realm. Completely by themselves, with no idea where they're going or what they're doing, other than, you know, Pluto showing up, which doesn't really mean much. Kairi is left to go back to her world, you know, now that they've all reverted. And there's the very distinct impression that she and, you know, Sora and everyone else and Riku, the three of them will never actually see each other uh, ever again. And it is very possible that, you know, all three of these main groups of people will just be... gone forever, that all... that the only... And and I do say this is bittersweet, because it's not actually a bad ending, it's not a tragic ending like some of them are, but... Long story short, there's a lot to be sad about during this victory at the end of Kingdom Hearts 1. And again, this is the most happiest, quote-unquote, uh, ending of the Kingdom Hearts series, in my opinion. Now, Kingdom Hearts 1 really begins the light and dark dynamic, which will be explored later and explored pretty much in every single game of the Kingdom Hearts series. It's one of the primary themes of the series, the, the di- 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 uh, not the dichotomy, actually. Uh, the dynamic between the three sides. Yes, three, by the way. I've, I've been talking about it this whole time, I'm finally going to start talking about it. But the primary motivational theme of Kingdom Hearts 1 is very strongly, very clearly, darkness. Kingdom Hearts 1 is all about the darkness side of the three. It doesn't fully explore the darkness per se, but it does touch the surface, most especially with all the Disney villains we saw, Maleficent herself, Ansem the Seeker of Darkness, Riku, Sora, Kairi, and Mickey. You see, Ansem, the seeker of darkness, was with the one true individual who truly had power over not just the heartless, but the darkness. We find out more about why that is later, but the impression we get now is very simply the fact that he truly, utterly believed in the ideal, the me- mentality, the concept of darkness. He was not like Maleficent, who, who saw it as a tool, and thus, you know, herself did not have control. He sees it as a destiny, as a manifest destiny, if you'll forgive me, and so he can control it because he is effectively a part of it. He is on its side as much as it is on his side. Now Riku, by contrast, the whole game it's very obvious that Riku is darkness. He is on the darkness side of things. But Riku is not an evil person. I've mentioned this before, that we, we see examples of the darkness and the heartless you know, affecting people who are not evil. Riku is not evil, prideful certainly, But we do see his good side. We do also see that once he realizes the true extent of what has been happening and how badly he's fallen, he turns around instantly. The very next thing we see after his fall of of Riku is him telling everyone else they need to run and holding back Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, while while they flee because he understands just how badly he's screwed up and he wants to fix this right now. And so, Riku is by no means a bad person, quite the contrary, he is very much the hero mentality. And again, I mentioned that it I, I wonder if Donald and Goofy had been with him the whole time, how things would have turned out, you know? But Riku is the, is the biggest and strongest example of darkness is not evil throughout the entire Kingdom Hearts series. He himself, if you'll forgive me for skipping ahead a bit, in Kingdom Hearts 2, explains the darkness is not evil thing in the best way possible because uh, a certain individual asks him and Mickey why do you hate the darkness? Mickey can't give a satisfactory answer to that because he he doesn't hate the darkness he just there's so many things in the darkness he doesn't like it is Riku who gives the satisfactory answer, it is Riku who actually tells him it's not the darkness itself it's the things that hide inside of it I've mentioned before that Kingdom Hearts and Star Wars, believe it or not, uh, Star Wars as it should be, not Star Wars as it is now, uh, have very much similarities between their light and dark uh, dichotomy. In other words, in the fact that they basically aren't a dichotomy. That the darkness is not necessarily evil, and the light is not necessarily good. And, uh, that evil will tend towards darkness because darkness is quicker and easier, and good will tend towards light, because light takes more effort and more or more strength, more strength of heart, that kind of a thing. But that does not make either light or darkness evil or good. And Riku is one of our best examples of that. I'm gonna skip over Sora for just a second. Kairi is, again, pure light. Definitely the light side of the trio of the triad. You know, Riku's the darkness, Kyrie is without question the light. She had no darkness in her heart. She didn't even make a heartless. She just left behind a puppet body that had nothing left other than, you know, the body after she lost her heart, uh, even though it should have, you know, certain other things should have happened to it, uh, including her becoming a heartless, like what happened to Sora. She is also <laughs> kind of, how do I put this? We only see the various edges of this. This becomes more fleshed out as the game, goes, game series goes on. But we see the edges of the I'm not just here to be rescued mentality. You know, she's not just the female, uh, you know, please come rescue me kind of person. She actually will do things of o- her own volition and try her best to contribute uh, as she goes. Uh, with the, the degree to which she succeeds on that, who knows? But not to spoil anything, but for those of you who know what I'm talking about, let's just say I'm looking forward to seeing her in Kingdom Hearts 3. Finally, we have Sora. Sora is, in my opinion, based on all the evidence throughout the entire series, without question, the in-between. There's light, that's Kairi, there's darkness, that's Riku, and then there's the in-between. The person who straddles both light and darkness. (laughs) The person who is gray, if if you'll forgive me for putting such a label onto it. Sora is the Grey of the trio, and that is why he so easily can use the Keyblade of Darkness, the Kingdom Key, and becomes a Heartless, and still fights for the Championing of Light, but is so easily affected by the Darkness, but at the same time is so easily manipulated by the forces of Light, too. And for bad, I might add. That happens more in, in the later games, but I just thought I'd mention it here. Because between the three of the characters... We do have the full triad, and this will be true later as well. Uh, We'll see another triad further in the series, which I'll get to later. The final thing I want to mention here is the Keyblade of Darkness thing I just mentioned. This is semi-confirmed, but mostly still theory, but long story short, it is very widely considered that the Keyblade that... uh, the Kingdom Key, the Key that Sora ends up using, and Riku briefly uses, is in fact the Keyblade of Darkness, the Keyblade of of Darkness. It would make perfect sense to me that someone like Sora could use that, first of all, but also that that was originally supposed to be Riku's key. It'd also make perfect sense that that is not the Keyblade that Mickey ends up using, because Mickey ends up using the Keyblade of Light which he finds in the Realm of Darkness. It also makes perfect sense to me in a very yin-yang sort of way that the Keyblade of Light would be in the Realm of Darkness, just as the Keyblade of Darkness would be in the Realm of Light. The significance of that can be debated. It may or may not actually matter at all. But I mainly mention it because someone who is in between using a Blade of Darkness with the intent to do Light, well, if you'll forgive me for the quote, can bring either good good or ruin. Just like they talk about here in Kingdom Hearts One, and just as will be mentioned later when we finally start talking about the Keyblade War. So I, st- I still think that's going to have its own significance in Kingdom Hearts Three, personally. Final thoughts: There's a lot about this series that can be analyzed. There's actually a huge amount of complexity, depth, and subtlety, both to the literalness and the symbology, and the I'm sorry, the symbolism and the themes. Of this series that can be delved into. It's one of the reasons I've been so hesitant to really start these videos is because it takes a lot of planning and thought and analysis and I've been very tired and sick and in pain lately. (laughs) So, But my ultimate point in bringing all that up is that it is my opinion that that complexity, that that depth, is one of the reasons Kingdom Hearts has the longevity that it has. That people like me don't just play it because it's got a cool combat system and because there's a cool factor, or because it's got Disney in it, or because it's got Final Fantasy in it. We play it because the story is wonderfully convoluted, loops in on itself, and despite everything, at least from what we know so far, doesn't actually have any plot holes. There are a few minor ones. But as far as the major plot points, as the characters and the overall arcing plot, There are no actual plot holes throughout it. It is very concretely made, and that is because, as I mentioned, once Kingdom Hearts 1 was an EXTREME success that sold incredibly well, they went ahead and sat down and wrote the rest of the series. As one, you know, before they even made the next game, they're like, we need to write everything out, and then we'll make the games as we go. Because in my opinion, that is the proper way to do things. The Babylon 5 method, if you'll forgive me for calling it that. I know I've referenced that before. So, very very many kinds of awesome here that they actually did that, and that they've kept it going, and that the series has been going in the way it has. And the final thing I want to mention... I'm glad that we're finally getting Kingdom Hearts Final Mix here in the States a decade later. But one of my no, the biggest thing I hate about the Kingdom Hearts series is the fact that there seems to be this strange elitism, because I can't explain it any other way, in in the, in the attitude of whether or not people should get the Kingdom Hearts series outside of Japan. Why is it, if you'll forgive me for asking, that, you know, here we are, with a series that sells like crazy over here, and then you do a final mix of Kingdom Hearts 1 and Kingdom Hearts 2, and Birth By Sleep, and all of these final mixes don't just add awesome gameplay stuff. They don't just add new content. They add more story. They're in fact part of canon. The parts of the story they add are part of canon. We are missing... It's like if you were watching a television show, just insert whatever show you want, you know, one that has a very concrete storyline like, uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica or Babylon 5 or whatever. And... You just don't get to see some episodes. Because those episodes were only released in Japan, and we don't get those here in the States. I have never understood that mentality, and I never will. And it's nice that we're finally getting Kingdom Hearts 1 Final Mix out here. But I would really love to just go over there and and look at them and say, What is wrong with you people? (laughs) Why haven't you been releasing these over here this entire time? Just anywhere. Not just in Japan, I'm not just trying to say release them in the States. Why are you just... because that's not the problem. They're just releasing them in Japan, that's the problem. Why aren't you releasing these elsewhere as well? I'll I'll, I'll stop, I'll stop. It's just, that has been pissing me off for years upon years upon years. Especially Kingdom Hearts 2's final mix, which not only added a ton of awesome cutscenes, but a ridiculous amount of additional content as far as gameplay goes. Anyways, that's all I got. Kingdom Hearts 1. Awesome game. I do hope you enjoyed. I have no idea how good or bad this video was because I've been only kind of half with it this whole time. I'm going to go get some food and stuff, and I guess you don't care about that fact. So I will talk to you guys later.